0: Many, many years ago, I was an airman. Actually, at the time, I think I was a staff sergeant. But I was in the military. I was in the Air Force. I was a carpenter. I was stationed at Goodfellow Air Force Base in San Angelo, Texas. Have you ever lived in Texas? Don't move there if you don't like heat, because (laughs) it's hot almost seven to nine months of the year. And what I was doing as a carpenter in Goodfellow Air Force Base, Texas, was I was out in the middle of nowhere. That wasn't the middle of nowhere, I was on the base and there were people passing by in their cars, but there weren't any buildings nearby. So there was no buildings, there was no trees, and there was this big open field and and right along the street, the sidewalk in that area had broken down, the concrete had, had failed. And so we had been tasked with pouring a new concrete sidewalk. So we had to go in and break up the old stuff Clean, put new sand and new gravel down, um, form it up, lay out some uh, rebar and some uh, some uh, wire, and then pour the concrete down, and then finish it off, and then remove the found the, the forms. So it's a simple process. It's a very simple thing. It's a little bit tedious and time consuming, but it's a simple thing. But there were no trees. Did I tell you that? And it was hot. And it was hot. And there were no buildings around, so there was no shade whatsoever. And this was back in the 70s. Nobody had thought about pop-up canopies that you could buy for hundred bucks at Fred Meyers. And I was wearing cotton, cotton, fatigues, full-length sleeves, ca- uh, combat boots, and a little ball cap that had nothing to protect my ears. And now, 40 years later, I got cancer. That's the side from that. I'm just telling you a little bit about my attitude that day, Okay? I was not happy that I got assigned that job. There were lots of other jobs I could have been doing in air-conditioned buildings. But I got stuck cutting with a handsaw the forms so that I could make this sidewalk. And I was not a happy human being. And I was grumbling to my father, why did you make it so hot today? Why? There's no electricity out here. I can't even use a stupid power saw. Hmm and I'm literally standing over a sawhorse cutting a piece of two by four when lo and behold the non-commissioned officer in charge of the firing range drives by he just happens to be a Christian not only that he happens to be a pastor of an independent church in our community and he drives by and he says hey Christian Bob how's life treating you how is the Lord doing for you today I'm fine. And he said, so what are you doing? And I explained to him, as stupid a question as that was, I explained to him what I was doing. I was cutting wood to make a form for a sidewalk that had failed. And he said, well, you know what? That reminds me of a Bible verse that I read recently. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Have you ever read it, Bob? I can't tell you at this moment that I know what you're talking about, sir. What is it? So whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. You know what that says to me, Bob? Every time you push that saw forward and every time, I mean, and then you pull it back, you should be going, glory to God. Glory to God. Glory to God. Thanks. He drove off. Glory to God. It's hot. Glory to God. It didn't change my attitude. Glory to God. But 40 years later, I still remember that. Why? Because I was under so much conviction at that moment by the Holy Spirit. Not because I was upset that it was hot, but because I was rebelling against the truth that was being spoken to me. Mark that. Mark that. We are commanded, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, give all the glory to God. Simple. What's glory? I mean, I could reach in my pocket and pull out a $20 bill. Is that giving him glory? We sing a song in this church. Let the weight of your glory cover us. What are we asking God to do at that moment? What does it mean when I say... God, I give you all the glory. What does it mean to just say glory? Now, in in Hebrew, the word in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is uh, kavod. It depends on who transliterates it, but it's k a v o d or k a b o d kavod. In Greek, the New Testament, and also the the Septuagint, where the Old Testament was translated in Greek, the word is doxa, doxa, I guess is how it's pronounced, doxa, D-O-X-A. And this light went on for me when I read that. Doxology. Singing praises to God is doxology, which is glory to God. But you know, if you look at the word in the dictionary, it says Glory can be weight, physical heaviness. Glory can be importance. They give that person glory. They are a stellar human being. They have made a name for themselves and they receive all the glory. It can also mean radiance, brilliant light. There's tons of different definitions, but these are some of the ones that were prominent. You know how they—if you go onto a dictionary, it'll say the number one definition, then the number two, then the number. Well, these were some of the top ones, but I'm like, didn't really help me. Didn't really help me. And as I was looking at the Word of God, I found a common theme, but not a definitive—I mean, a one-purpose definition for glory. And so I want to share with you some of the things that I learned as I study. First of all, God's glory. I want to talk about the power or preeminence of God. Now, you're familiar with the story. Joseph gets sold into slavery. He has to go to Egypt. God raises him up to be number two in the land of Egypt. Then a famine comes. And then Joseph's family comes because they need food. And ultimately the family, which is about 75 people strong at that point, moves to Egypt and remains there for the remainder of the seven years of famine. And then 400 plus years pass. And Pharaoh has changed numerous times. And Joseph is long dead. And Jacob is long dead. And all of that original generation are gone. And now the Israelites, the Jewish people, Have been enslaved by the Egyptians. (coughs) Excuse me. And Moses is raised up to be the liberator, if you will. The person who comes before Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And we know the story. We don't have time this morning to go through all the things that God did to make um, this happen and come about. But the bottom line is, if you look in Exodus chapter 14. And I'm going to give you a bunch of scriptures this morning. So if if you're a note taker, uh, you'll have to see me afterwards because there's too many scriptures to keep repeating over and over again. Exodus 14 chapter 4 says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. This is God talking to Moses. He will pursue the Israelites, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all of his armies. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And so this is this idea of power or preeminence. God is saying... I am going to get for myself the glory. Through my own actions, I'm going to make sure these people know who I am and I am more powerful than any one of their so called gods. And then later in Isaiah, chapter 42 and 48, the prophet Isaiah speaking on God's behalf says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another. I will not give my praise to idols. In Isaiah 48, I will not yield my glory to another. See, it's important in God's own being that God be First. That God be preeminent. That God over is over everything and everyone. And God will not give that place to anybody. That's why you hear over and over and over again, even through the New Testament, what is it that God wants from us? He wants us to love Him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. Everything that is us, He has to be in charge of. Everything. Because God, from the beginning of His time relating to human beings, has said, you're my children, I love you, but I'm still in charge. I'm still God, and I'm not giving that up for anything. And we see, as human beings have rebelled through history, that God lovingly stands His ground and says, you know what? I love you, but I ain't putting up with this garbage from you. And we could go on and on through the whole of the Old Testament and the New Testament, looking at how God stands his ground and says, I'm God, no one else, and nobody's going to take my place. And heaven help anybody that tries. Now, again, trying to understand, we we hear God saying, I'm not going to give my glory. The definition of that one for me sounds like reputation, reputation. Sounds like um, position, authority, sounds like place. I'm not going to give up my place. I'm not going to give up my glory. I'm not going to give up my reputation. I'm not going to step aside so there's this sitting on the throne sense, the glory of God. But there's another idea of glory of God presented in the Bible, and it's the presence of God. In in Exodus chapter 40, God has ordained through Moses that the people of God build a or, or fabricate a tent, a tabernacle. And that God is going to use that as the place of worship and the place for meeting. And it literally says in Isaiah chapter, excuse me, Exodus chapter 40, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And then again, when Solomon is dedicating the new temple that, that he had just built, there's this time where it says the priests had to withdraw. This is 1 Kings chapter 8. The priests had to withdraw from the holy place because the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. And there's this, this idea of this kavod. This is the, the, the presence of God being so real and tangible. It's like, there's, you've ever heard the term the thin place, where between the spirit world and the physical world there's an opening, and it's the presence of God, the glory of God is just beamed out into our space. And when that happens, it literally says they have to stop and withdraw. The humans do; they can't continue their normal operations when they're in the presence of God. And you know, there's times—so many times—in my own life where I have gone, God, would you let the glory fall? Would you let me experience that? I mean, there's, there is—there was times when there was a time when Moses was in despair, and he said, "Let me see your face. Let me see your face, please." And God said, "Um, I will put you into the cleft and I will cover you as my as I pass, as my glory passes. And you can see my back because no one can see my face and live. So there's this sense of if I am in the presence of God, the reason I have to stop is because it's so overwhelming and literally it could kill him. And if you remember the time when Moses and the leaders are up on Sinai and the people hear the voice of God and see the glory of God up on the top of Sinai, what is their first response? Oh, we're going to die. You talk to him. You talk to him. Just come back and tell us what he said. We can't do this. There's this powerful sense of the presence of God overwhelming the humanity to the point of fear. So God has this place of prominence, of preeminence. God's presence is powerful. And God has some very specific I excuse the P, but I I was having fun. A premise for his promise, okay? He gave a premise for his promise. Now, if you read in Hebrews, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That's talking about God. And so the same Jesus in Hebrews is the same God that said this premise to his promise back in the Old Testament. And the premise is simply this. If you, then I. If you, then I. Nearly every promise God gave humans starts out, if you, then I. I'll give you an example. Joshua, the guy who came right after Moses, The words in Joshua chapter 1, verses 7 through 9 are, Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then... You will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Why? For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. The promise, the premise of God's promise is if you will do what I tell you to do, then these are the things I will do for you. And the word to Joshua was, read my book, meditate on it, know it backwards, forwards, inside and out, and live it. And if you do that, I will guarantee you success and I will guarantee you a presence that will be overwhelming, powerful and beyond anything you could possibly imagine. And as a result, you won't fear of anything. You will be strong. You will be courageous because you'll have me at your back. Now, that same premise has been shown throughout the Bible, one specific and prominent one. Again, going back to the time of Solomon's dedication of the temple in 1 Kings chapter 9, if we were to read that whole thing, which we don't have time this morning to read all nine verses, but if you read it, literally God says, if you, then I will establish you. If you, then I will make you a king whose, 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 whose reign will never end, basically. But if you don't, and this is incredible what he said, if you don't, and it wasn't just Solomon, but it was his progeny. This temple that you just dedicated to my presence will not only lose my presence, but it will be destroyed. That's my promise to you. You want me? I got, you, you got me. If you, then I. I promise you I will never leave you. I promise you I will give you everything you ask of me and more. But don't cross me. You cross me, I'm out. Not only will I be out, but you will even lose this glorious thing that you just built. Well, we know what happened. We know what happened. If you go through the the prophecies of Ezekiel and, and Isaiah and some of the other Jeremiah, Daniel, you'll see all of the all of the, the the thing that happened. Israel did indeed fail to continue to be honoring to God, and did indeed uh, lost uh, lost their place as a nation, an independent nation, with the presence of God as their king. If you look at Ezekiel Ezekiel chapters 9 and 10, and again, we don't have time this morning to read it all, but you will see in Ezekiel chapter 9 and 10, specifically in chapter 10, it says the very presence of God departed from the temple due to the sins of the people. And then 70 plus years later, now, the Isaiah prophecy wasn't necessarily spoken 70 plus years later, but it came into be 70 plus years later. Isaiah chapter 40, the verse five verses say, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. Her sin has been paid for that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins a voice of one calling in the wilderness, calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert, a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all the people will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And what God says is, there's going to come a time when my presence will come back. When you have finally turned your hearts back to me. When you finally do what I tell you to do, I will bring my presence back. And even today, in our own world, throughout again from the beginning of, of recorded time all the way through today, God's glory is the proof of God's relationship with us. If you want to say you have a relationship with God, but you can't show God in your life, Not you trying to be like God. I'm not saying that. I'm saying if you can't show how God is actively involved in your life, you're kidding yourself saying you have a relationship with him. In Exodus chapter 34, it says that Moses would enter into the tent of meeting and when he came out, he would tell the Israelites what God had commanded him. And when he was doing that, the Israelites noticed that Moses' face literally glowed. There was something about his visage that glowed. Now, did it become radiated and glow in the dark, or was it just something about him? I don't know. We're not given that. I can tell you when I was a kid, when I was just a brand new baby Christian, I hadn't even known the Lord a year. I was in a Bible study with some people and there was this one man I could not look him in the eye. Not because I was dirty, but he was so holy. I literally couldn't look on his face because it just made me realize how unlike Christ I was as I looked at him. And for me, that's what this is saying. Moses projected somehow some way radiated the word says the very presence of God through his face such that he had to put a veil over his face because people couldn't look him in the eye but then Paul uses that very statement in his letter to the Corinthians 2 Corinthians chapter 3 he says that Moses' radiation of his this meeting with God faded over time. And it got to the point where the the veil was there to hide the fact that it was fading. And he said even us verse 18 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, even we who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So there's this this idea this thought that Paul is promoting saying, you know, As Moses went on, that glory began to fade. The people never noticed it because he kept it covered. But he said the reality is the more you stay in God's presence, the more the glow is there. And if you don't stay in God's presence, the glow isn't there. And eventually people are going to notice it. But there's there's definitely a glow of something. And the way he said it was we're being transformed into his image. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that we're going to walk around with long brown hair and a brown beard and piercing eyes and walk on water. That's not what it means. What it means is is that people walking down the street are going to see you and notice something about you that is not normal, quote unquote. How can you go through what you're going through and still have such peace? How can you go through what you're going through and still respond in love. How can you have such patience with those screaming meanies that are running around at your feet? How can you... You see what I'm saying? Well, if you look in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, we see what is called the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Faithfulness and self-control. These are the images, if you will, of Christ that are showing out of our life, shining on our face as people watch us. That's the proof of God's glory. I mean, God's glory on your face, on the way that you're living and responding to this world is the proof that you are indeed in right relationship with God. And God, being the same yesterday and today and forever holds you to the same if you, then I. If you will read my word, pray to me regularly, honor me with your life, then I will promise you all of these blessings and more. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will support you. I will guide you. I will comfort you. I will lead you into all truth. But it's not a Christmas gift and there's nothing you have to do but open it. Because see, in our Western culture, that's what we think so much. Oh, pour out blessing upon blessing upon blessing, God. But the reality is, is, this is a two-way street. And what we're commanded to do, going right back to the beginning of my sermon, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Why? Why? And here's the crux. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Let your light shine before other human beings so that they can see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You see, we teach... In the, in the Church of the Nazarene, in Wesleyan and holiness circles, we teach no one can come to God unless God draws them. It's called prevenient grace. That's the theological term. No one can come to God unless God draws them. And the only way God is going to draw them is if God gets their attention somehow, some way, and shows them value in having relationship with God. And how does that happen most of the time? Most of the time, it is not an epiphany. It is not a poof, God shows up in a thin spot and says, Here I am, look at me. Normally, what happens is, God has his people placed in specific spots at specific times, responding to specific situations, and having the world watch and go, How in the world are they able to act like that? That's not how I would act. What do they have that I don't have? And when that question finally gets voiced, you then have the opportunity to speak the truth to these people. And if it means wearing red and running through the streets like a crazy person throwing candy at people, then do it. Because if you look at the story of David, he danced in the streets almost buck naked to glorify God. Because it's not about you. It's about God. And so there's this idea that I need to ask continually, God, number one, am I in relationship with you such that as I walk this earth, people are seeing you and not me? And if not, what needs to change? And then secondly, as you are walking down the road or sitting at your desk or sitting across a cup of coffee or table with a cup of coffee with somebody, as God gives you the opportunity you watch for the chance to say, you know what? You're sitting there questioning how I could be going through this with such a calm demeanor. It's because of Jesus. That's how I, that's why. Be ready to give an answer. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15, I think it is. Always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within you, but do so with gentleness and respect. You're not supposed to beat them over the head with anything, but you are supposed to turn their heart to Christ by the way that you live. And the way that you do that is you follow the if I, I mean, if you, then I premise. You follow what you know to be right. The reading of the word, the fellowshipping together, discipling one another, iron sharpening iron. You know it all. I don't need to go through the litany. And if you're not seeing people come to you and asking you about your faith, then you need to question why. Because if you're not being used to cause thirst in somebody's life, you're not very effective as salt. And if you're not helping people to see clearly because they're in darkness and light is emanating from you because of the presence of God, then maybe there's something blocking that presence of God because I will tell you, if you are not faithful, God will say, you know what? I'm not putting up with this garbage. I have promised you I will never leave you. But if you will not give me first place, then we've got a problem, and I'm staying right here, and you get to move to me, not me move to you. So I encourage each one of you in the coming days, spend some time reading the scripture, spend some time praying and talking to the Lord, saying, God, it's been a long time since anybody said, I see Jesus in you. Or it's been a long time since anybody's asked me, what do you have that I don't have? God, why is that? And what needs to change so that I can see that start happening again in my life? Let's pray.